Hi, I'm Mimi Gerges. The Muslim Brotherhood has been around for nearly 90 years. They briefly held power in Egypt. Now there's a big political crisis in Qatar over supporting them. So what's the big deal about the Muslim Brotherhood? The Brotherhood is a totalitarian movement because it's saying, do what we say, this is Islam. If you don't do what we say, you are not a good Muslim. Welcome to the Mimi Gerges Show. The Muslim Brotherhood started in Egypt in the 1920s. Their motto is, Allah is our objective, the Prophet is our leader, the Quran is our law, jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. While they formally renounced violence years ago, many of their offshoots haven't. The group has spread to other countries, including the United States. The country of Qatar has been an ardent supporter and financier of the Brotherhood, prompting a group of countries, including Saudi Arabia, Egypt and the UAE to cut all ties. Joining me is Eric Traeger, author of a book on the Muslim Brotherhood called Arab Fall, and Mukhtar Awand, a research fellow at George Washington University. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Eric, let me start with you. What's the ultimate goal of the Muslim Brotherhood? The Muslim Brotherhood's ultimate goal is to gain power within the roughly 70 countries or so in which they have organizations and then unite those countries under Muslim Brotherhood rule in what they would call a global Islamic state. Now, um, I should you know, tell your viewers that this is not likely to happen, of course. Uh, this is a group that couldn't even hold power in Egypt, where they're from, where they started for more than a year. But nonetheless, it is a goal that this organization strongly believes in and a goal which its members are constantly working to pursue by spreading their message, in brief, their message being that Islam is a comprehensive uh, system meant to control every aspect of life. Whose interpretation of Islam, of course, because Islam is a diverse religion, their interpretation. And in this sense, the Brotherhood is a totalitarian movement because it's saying, do what we say, this is Islam. If you don't do what we say, you are not a good Muslim. So creating an Islamic state, a global Islamic state, based on Sharia law, sounds awfully familiar, right? Isn't that what ISIS is and is trying to do? Is it just a difference of tactic and the same ideology? Well, it's, it's definitely a difference of tactic. The difference is that the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to establish this neo-caliphate from the grassroots up. It wants to first spread its message in society. Once it gains sufficient support, gains state control in those 70 states in which it claims to have organizations, and then again, uni unite those uh, countries under its control for that neo-caliphate. ISIS has a different plan, which is to declare a caliphate now, kill now, convince later. That's a difference in tactics. That's not to say that the Brotherhood is moderate because of the way it's pursuing it, because at the end of the day, the goal is awfully similar. The one caveat I need to insert here is that, of course, we've seen what a caliphate looks like under ISIS. It's, uh, it's extremely brutal. It's genocidal, uh, cutting off heads, etc. Images well known to your viewers. Uh, we don't know really what the Muslim Brotherhood's caliphate would look like. I would not in any way assume it'll be a good, uh, a good thing. Um, but we but have seen Sharia law, and we've seen that in Saudi Arabia. We've seen that in Iran, and it's not pretty. It hasn't been pretty there, and I'm certainly not suggesting that it would be pretty under the Brotherhood. But in my research on the Brotherhood, what surprised me most is that the Brotherhood doesn't actually have a firm idea about its own interpretation of the Sharia. And what they are basically trying to do is simply gain power and gain global power. And whatever they do to gain power 
is Islam. There really is no interpretation there. There is no what we would call in Arabic fiqh or jurisprudence. There is no real thinking or, or intellectual background to this movement other than a program for power. ISIS uh, has, has a, is much clearer, you know, in my analysis, uh, in terms of what its ideology is and, and what it hopes to do in power. The Brotherhood is not, and frankly, that's a big part of the reason that it failed in Egypt, because it came to power and simply had no program whatsoever. So they're verifiably anti-Semitic. They're anti-Christian. They're hostile to women's rights. They're hostile to the West. Is that verifiable? So we know that this isn't like a moderate you know, we can work with you guys kind of, oh, an oh, organization. Uh, your characterization is absolutely correct. Read their websites, uh, very anti-Semitic, inciting against Christians uh, regularly, and uh, very anti-American. Very anti so what they would do in power regarding minorities, regarding the United States, is quite clear. How they would govern internally is less clear. And again, this is why they fell from power so quickly, because when it came to tax policy or education policy or foreign policy, quite frankly, beyond certain gut instincts, no plan. Mukhtar, why does Qatar support the Muslim Brotherhood? In many ways, it's a million-dollar question. Uh, some believe that this is just their attempt to try and be the new kingpin in the region, um, shed away Saudi hegemony. Um, and sure enough, in 2013, 2012, it did look like Qatar could be playing that role. Uh, political parties that are effectively its patrons, uh, that Qatar is its patron, and clients in Egypt, Tunisia, uh, possibly also in Syria, and in other countries that were going to reach power and were going to be the new presidents, um, emirs, or what have you, of these nations. And all of a sudden, Qatar would be in that position of uh, being the kingmaker in the region. At the same time, also, I think there is an ideological dimension to this. Uh, I don't think we should completely ignore the fact that uh, over decades, uh, Islamists have played a prominent role in Qatari society. Uh, sure, this may not be exhibited in how Qatar presents itself with the many different universities that it's hosting, uh, art shows and things along those lines. But when you look at the interaction between the Emir of Qatar and someone like Yusuf al-Qaradawi, for instance, um, this, is, this is a very close relationship. Um, many of and these he's, a, he's an extremist. He is definitely someone with, with extreme views, um, anti-Semitic views, uh, has supported suicide bombings, and is a spiritual leader in many respects of the Muslim Brotherhood movement worldwide. Supported suicide bombings against American troops. Specifically in, in Syria. And of course, the thing with suicide bombings is that this is a slippery slope at its best. Uh, and some of his defenders try to say that this was a specific context. Uh, but it does give you a window into the worldview of the type of religious scholars that some in the Qatari establishment look up to and uh, look to for guidance. And so I don't think it's just a cynical power play to try and support Islamists across the region and be uh, against all of, of your allies. Uh, but I think also it's in some respects they believe that Islamists are the future of the region uh, ideologically, but also, sure, they, they do buy into this idea that if there are so-called you know, Islamist forms of government, uh, then the region will somehow be more stable, be more powerful, and of course. But Qatar why does this bother Saudi Arabia? Because it's not like ideologically they're opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood. 
you know, one of the interesting things about this is that this episode shows us how we need to make a distinction between government policies and populations. Uh, Saudi Arabia, of course, in the past was key to enabling the Muslim Brotherhood to be what it is today, right. not only in the region, but also and in the West. And funding Salafist movements all across the, the globe. Absolutely. Funding schools, uh, funding uh, mosques, mosques, and things along those lines. However, the Saudi establishment, the, the elite, if you will, uh, especially in the last decade, there's been a very slow and sure frustrating movement uh, towards being far less committed to an ideological project. Uh, I, I was in Saudi Arabia in, in 2015 and met with Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The way that he defines his priorities in the region is to ensure the stability of the nation-state system. Muslim Brotherhood, any non-state actor, whether it's Sunni or Shia, but Islamist in its uh, orientation that is revolutionary, is a threat to this worldview. It may seem counterintuitive, but there is very much a difference between the kind of policies that Saudi Arabia wants to implement across the region in terms of supporting Islamist You're saying that the Muslim Brotherhood threatens them politically. And Absolutely. that's why they're against them. But also there is an ideological dimension, not to mm. get too deep into this. Um, Salafis and Salafi Wahhabis in particular, as quietest Salafis, um, do find the Brotherhood creed uh, detestable and uh, do actually uh, blame, I should say, uh, the rise of Salafi jihadism on the Muslim Brotherhood ideology because what they say is when you have a political ideology very much like the one Eric described and this becomes your objective um, in your vehicle to reach power then people will try and, and, and use radical means and violence to achieve this, this objective. The quietest Salafi uh, he believes that you do this by purification, spreading the message. Now, they are just as radical as the Islamist. However, they lack a political, determined political vision and very much also lack the Qutbist uh, influence. So Sayyid Qutb, one of the Muslim Brotherhood's most prominent ideologues, this is someone that came with the radical idea that basically Islam was no longer in practice in the world. All of these governments are apostate governments and that we have to struggle against them. And they need to be toppled. Absolutely. And so Saudi Arabia, even the, the religious establishment that we all detest, actually they find the Muslim Brotherhood type ideology, Qutbist ideology, Islamist ideology problematic because they believe this is what leads to violence. Eric, what is the coalition asking? What are they demanding from Qatar? Well, they've signaled quite a few different things and I think we can put them in a couple of boxes. The first is about media. Uh, the, the GCC states that have pushed against uh, Qatar as well as Egypt are unnerved by Al Jazeera, which promotes the Brotherhood's ideology to some extent and promotes a viewpoint that these governments see as subversive within their own countries. But beyond Al Jazeera, you have English language websites that Qatar uh, is believed to fund, like Middle East Eye, which spreads all sorts of ideas about specific uh, officials in these countries, as well as the Brotherhood's ideology uh, more broadly. So you have the media basket. You also have the political groups basket, the fact that Qatar has been a safe haven for Muslim brothers, for members of Al-Gamma al-Islamiyya, which is a U.S. designated terrorist organization, um, for, for financiers of all sorts of terrorist organizations operating right now in Syria in particular. Uh, and then you have 
the third box, which, which frankly, both the GCC states uh, and Qatar have been a little vague about, which is this question of, are they really trying to change the behavior regarding Qatar's involvement with the groups and the media, or are they trying to change the Qatari regime? Uh, the Qatari government is, uh, is of the view, I think I could say, that this is what these states seek. The states themselves have at times said, we're looking for a change of behavior. At times said, even if the Qataris promise to change their behavior, how do we know that this government will really follow through on that? They've promised that in the past, which indicates that they might be seeking more than just a change in behavior. But to make a long story short, it's about the Qatari media. It's about the groups that Qatar supports. And it is, to some extent, about this question of whether the Qatari regime itself can be trusted to change its behavior. Well, so this is serious. I mean, because they're not going to just voluntarily step down from power to save their country. So does this lead to war? Um, it, it, look, it's, it, it's very hard to say. The, the, the major uh, factor that we have to insert here if we're talking about military is the fact that the United States has 11,000 uh, servicemen and women who are based at al uh, and And one might think that that would be a reason for these countries to be very hesitant to intervene because of the presence of, of uh, U.S. military and you know, an air base in particular. It's hard to say, though, and certainly the Qataris are of the view that this is what the GCC states ultimately want. And of course, Qatar has a history of coups and, and regime changes. And so, so this, is, this is actually where, um, where I think the Qataris are especially unlikely to make certain types of concessions because to show weakness when they believe the goal is the change of their own regime would, in their view, only open them up to further pressure. But I think it's strange that we didn't have a problem, the United States didn't have a problem with them funding terrorism and supporting the Brotherhood and, and that kind of thing. And it's the Arab countries that get together and say, we're going to isolate Qatar and we're going to punish them for their activities. The big question is why now? I mean, the issues behind this dispute are actually longstanding. The UAE and, and Saudi Arabia in particular have raised many times the issue of Al Jazeera, raised many times the issue of the support for the Brotherhood. But and nothing's ever groups. happened. Nothing's ever happened. So the question is whether President Trump's to, to Riyadh last month and his very strong message um, against terrorism and his call for these countries to step up and, quote, drive them out, them, of course, being, being the terrorists, whether that uh, encouraged Saudi Arabia and the UAE to take this strong stance against Qatar. The problem, though, is that American interests in Qatar are, are competing with each other. On one hand, we have this air base, we have this military relationship. Qatar is part of that coalition against ISIS. On the other hand, Qatar does many other things in the region that we find very troubling. And the real problem here is that because this has an existential dimension to it, um, an American policy that is middle of the road and tries to bridge gaps is very hard to pull off, especially because the officials who would normally be carrying out those roles, especially something like an Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, those officials haven't been appointed yet. So we don't have the U.S. personnel in place that would bridge gaps between these two sets of American partners and hopefully set up some kind of negotiation. So what's the best outcome for this? Is it to go back to the status quo, to just everybody go back to how things were and 
Well, I certainly don't think so because Qatar's behavior in the region is deeply troubling and it houses and uh, provides safe haven for some very nasty individuals, including individuals that finance terrorism. And the United States has raised this issue with the Qataris many, many times, in addition to the types of messages that are put out in Qatari funded media. So, and the, we never got anywhere. And we've never gotten anywhere. Because we weren't willing to do something extreme like cut them off. Correct. Like, but here's the problem that in any kind of escalation, you need to transition very quickly from an escalation to a result. The longer this escalation by Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and these other states continues, the longer Qatar will find a way out. The longer Qatar will be resistant to making any concessions. And this is my concern, that the longer this drags on, the less likely the Qataris are to make, will be to make concessions, the more likely they will be to find a way out of making concessions. And those options are available. You have Turkey now sending troops to Qatar. You have Iran opening its airspace. Of course, Qatar already shares a major gas field with Iran, and so it's already in that sense uh, forced to cooperate with Iran. And so I worry that the longer this drags on, the less likely we're going to see any real movement on ending Qatar's role in terror finance, and at the same time, we might push them closer to Iran. Let's go back to the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a membership organization. How does one join, and what's the benefit of joining? So becoming a Muslim brother is not like becoming a Democrat or a Republican. You don't simply check a box on a form at the DMV. It's a five to eight year process during which every Muslim brother rises through multiple ranks of membership, is tested for his commitment to the cause and willingness to follow orders. At the end of this process, takes an oath to listen and obey. The purpose of that is to ensure the Muslim Brotherhood has a deeply committed membership that will spread the organization's message in society with the goal of gaining power. And the second component of the Brotherhood that I think is worth mentioning here is that the Brotherhood has a pyramidal command chain in which cells of roughly five to ten individuals were spread throughout, in this case, Egypt historically, all answer to a central leadership. So the fact that it has a committed membership and historically a very rigid and effective hierarchy in a country that was totally politically disorganized after the 2011 uprising, which I think is errantly called the Arab Spring, uh, having those two factors is what enabled the Muslim Brotherhood to win power in Egypt so quickly. Muqtad, how many Muslim brothers are there worldwide? Do we know? Worldwide, it's difficult to, to say. It could be in the low millions, um, maybe upwards to 10 million if we want to add uh, some of their supporters, sympathizers, and their families. But actually, the number is mm -hmm. quite small when we go country by country. In Egypt, uh, the, the largest group uh, by the acting deputy uh, Supreme Guide's own account, about 900,000 uh, full members of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and so in many respects, the, 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 the band structure that Eric was describing uh, does and has always given this illusion of them being more powerful than they are and more present than they are, uh, when in reality they are in fact very much a minority in all of these societies. Going back to that election in Egypt where they won the election, they campaigned on democracy, on inclusion, on protecting minority rights. Did people believe that, given who they are? It's very hard to generalize about what, what Egyptians believe. We have to remember that roughly 30 years of politics was packed into a two and a half year period after the 2011 uprising. Um, what I think many Egyptians who ultimately supported the Brotherhood in that election, um, maybe by holding their nose, maybe by not holding their nose, I think many of those Egyptians saw two things. First of all, uh, in the runoff, 
The other candidate was Ahmed Shafiq. He had been Mubarak's last prime minister. He had been appointed actually at the height of that uprising in 2011. And there was this sentiment in the country that why did we have a revolution to then elect Mubarak's last prime minister? Let's take a gamble. Let's go with this guy. I think there was another view also that the Muslim Brotherhood may have some strange ideas, may be a little bit radical, but at the same time, they're well organized. And what Egypt needs right now is a well-organized group to help run the country. Now, of and course, bring back stability and, and bring back normalcy. stability. Now, now, of course, look, we, we, we should add to this that there are many Islamists in Egypt. There are many people who in that moment thought, you know, we've tried many different approaches to governance. Maybe now is time to try Islamism. You sort of heard when I was doing interviews uh, during that period in Egypt, I heard this sort of attitude of experimentation. And of course, there are actual Islamists who really believe in the Brotherhood's ideology and the fact that there was no Salafist candidate is a reason why even many Salafists supported uh, Mohamed Morsi. I was in Tahrir Square, actually, the moment that Morsi was declared the winner of that election. And you saw Muslim brothers, you saw youth activists who just didn't want to return to the Mubarak regime. But I saw many, many, many Salafists who had come from all over Egypt to be there for that moment. Did they threaten violence if they didn't win? In the square on that day, and, and I, I am of the view that this was underreported, you had, um, first of all, Muslim brothers who had been camped out in tents for about a week. They were camped out protesting the fact that the parliament had been dissolved by a court and, and enforced by the military about a week earlier due to technicalities that are relevant to the previous parliamentary elections. Um, but they had said that they were, they were prepared to die in confrontations with security forces if Morsi was not elected the winner. But, now, but was this the Muslim Brotherhood policy that this is what we're going to do if we don't win? They had been ordered to go there and camp out, and they were organized in that square according to one of their structural designations. So you have cells, and then one stage above that is called a populace or a shoabah, and they had been organized in Tahrir Square according to their shoabah. I was doing interviews with um, Muslim brothers in the square trying to understand how they were organized. That whole protest in the square preceding Morsi's election was totally stage managed by the Brotherhood's leadership. There was an official in the square who was passing messages to the heads of those populaces who were camped out in the square and to the guidance office, which is the executive bureau of the, of the Brotherhood. This was a way to put pressure on the military, which was then governing the country, and say, look, if you don't uh, announce that Mohamed Morsi is the winner of this election, all hell will break loose. And there was, there were instances. But well, that's a threat. It is a threat. <laughs> now, I have to say, I do think that the brothers in that moment believed two things. A, that Morsi had won. I think that they, they, had, they had been monitoring the elections around the country. They were well organized to do that and believed that. And, and secondly, they believed, based on the fact that the parliament, which they controlled, had been dissolved, that an electoral victory might be stolen from them. Um, and so, but no doubt that this was their way of bargaining with the regime. And when Morsi was declared the victor, there was a sigh of relief, at least within the square, because the expectation was violence if Shafiq was named the winner. What do you think of the Obama administration's policy at the time, which was engagement? Look, these people are in power. We might as well engage so that we can influence them. I think that the Obama administration was right in the sense that Egypt's a really important country. 
Uh, and the bottom line is that whoever is governing Egypt is someone that Washington must have a relationship with. The problem is they didn't understand that the Muslim Brotherhood had won an election in a deeply polarized country, that the president of the Muslim Brotherhood had won with a very small majority of the vote in a second round. Of course, in the first round, he only got a quarter of the vote. And that there was strong resistance within the society to the specific types of things that the Brotherhood would want to do when it came to um, you know, religious discourse and, and, and the like. So, um, so I think that they were very short-sighted in thinking that they could put all their eggs in that basket. And it's a lesson, I think, that in transitional periods, you really need to engage broadly. You can't assume that because this country has had an election, that will bestow legitimacy. This was Egypt's first electoral experiment. Uh, it failed very badly because the Brotherhood failed very badly. And as a result of that, I think there was just not the level of commitment to that experiment that we would expect as Americans where, hey, when someone's elected, whether you like it or not, that's who was elected. That person will right. be there for four years. It's not like that. Mukhtar, what's going on in the United States? I know that um, Senator Cruz has proposed um, to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. Do you think that that should be the case? It's a complicated issue. Um, you cannot have a blanket designation on the entire Muslim uh, Brotherhood. Why One not? can argue that, uh, well, first of all, that there isn't necessarily a, a complete uh, command and control over a global Muslim Brotherhood. There is an international kind of organization, coordination, uh, but Muslim Brotherhood organizations of different countries behave and act differently. And in a way, this is one of the reasons why such attempts to designate the Brotherhood haven't gotten anywhere, because someone can easily point to in Nahda, in Tunisia, and say that this is part of the government, in Bahrain, in Jordan. Um, I think a specific country by country uh, approach uh, would yield results. Uh, the Brotherhood in Egypt today, Syria, Yemen, um, are very much different from the Brotherhoods and, and the other countries that I've mentioned. But I think designations either way do not usually or would not really come from le legislation. Um, this is something that needs to be conducted by the IC, a thorough investigation. There is a incredible uh, knowledge deficit when it comes to the United States government understanding fundamentally brother the, who the Brotherhood are, their networks, because they haven't been looked at, uh, at least in the last few decades, as an actual national security threat. Because obviously there are other groups that are a more pertinent threat to our national security. But looking at the Brotherhood is something that needs more nuance. And it's this issue of to what extent are we going to look specifically on the terrorist at the end of the chain, or are we going to look at the phenomena of extremism in general? Uh, but with the, all of that being said, uh, today, if one looks at the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, there are factions that may be identified and offshoots uh, of the organization that are explicitly engaged in terrorism. Um, and this has been something, again, that people inside the Brotherhood structure proper uh, have given the green light to. Eric, what does the future hold for the Muslim Brotherhood? Right now, it's very dark. But, um, you know, I think the real question dark is... Dark for them or dark for us? It's dark for them. <laughs> uh, you have tens of thousands of them in prison <laughs> and exile, and certainly within Egypt, uh, they are not a significant factor on the ground. That, their organization, that pyramidal command chain, has been very deeply broken. I want to thank you both for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Mimi Gerges Show. You can see all of our programs on WHUT.org and YouTube. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and leave me your comments there. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks for watching, and I hope you'll join me again next time.